Hello, everyone out there. <laughs> Once again, this is another episode of the Cult Podcast. Which I hear is your favorite name for a podcast ever. Yeah. No, it's not. Make sure to like and subscribe for more content like this. Wow. Cult Podcast. I'm going to cut that. <laughs> so today's going to be a weird episode. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Off the beaten path. So just as a word of caution moving into this episode, if you don't want to hear us talk about something other than film television and media this episode might not be for you uh but i also would like to state that we meaning gabe and i believe this topic and the issues we discuss here today are more than pertinent to today's world and how we as humans consume not just media but in general and even to the point of how we are influenced to navigate our daily lives we apologize if this episode offends anyone we can say that from the outset that's not our intention at all in fact by the end of it we hope you can see that we aren't taking sides per se but instead we want all of human life to thrive and we hope this episode of the cult podcast finds you well today so we're gonna probably hit on some topics that you might not expect when talking about capitalism um, but there's good reason for that Part of that conversation revolves around a significant chunk of the population that perpetuates this way of thinking is, and we come from this place as well, uh, is a place called evangelical Christianity. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a bit of an angle here that we'll incorporate into the topic. And Tim, Stephen's brother, who we'll be speaking with, has done a lot of research and he's kind of an authority on the topic and the way these things intersect. Yeah, so we're going to talk not just about capitalism, but you're going to hear us talk about politics and how it intersects with capitalism and then also how those politics intersect with things like evangelical Christianity, like Gabe just said. A little bit of the people that display those capitalistic tendencies. And why. Yeah, the, the big question is why. Why is this a thing that is so important right now, or is at least important to consider? Rather than just accept something for the way it is, to have a healthy skepticism of the world is a very important thing, and to question the systems under which you live. So that's, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> we also know that this is a historic moment. Not just because of the upcoming election, but because of the state of our economy, especially in the middle of a pandemic. And so we're really just trying to explore how it affects us on a day-to-day and also affects those around us. Because we care, Mm -hmm. ultimately. Also, how do we segue to this? Also, in Batman Begins, billionaire Bruce Wayne sets out on a journey of loss to understand how to fight the crime in his city. He has to learn how to overcome the illusions of wealth and learn how to combat the bad rich who keep the lower class where they are, creating new hardships every day and keeping the status of the city in disarray. This plot essentially mirrors sort of what we're discussing today, and for that reason, you will hear Hans Zimmer's score from Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy throughout the episode. Big Nolan fans here. (laughs) It also fits tonally. Yeah. You guys will see how when we talk about these heavier, larger subjects, the tone of the music uh, sort of works out. So I asked someone here today who can help educate us on the topic. His name is Tim Burnett. Tim is a dreamer, philosopher, and theologian. He has spent years reflecting on the evolving Christian faith and earned his doctorate from Claremont School of Theology. 
where he studied process metaphysics, philosophy, and theology, and compassion. A self-proclaimed whitehead nerd, he embraces theopoetics as a lens for seeing the world, with a practical emphasis on communal formation, beauty, aesthetics, and spirituality. He currently curates The Way Collective, which is a community of shared practices and values based in Santa Barbara. He is an advocate for love and reconciliation across boundaries of faith and non-faith. And he agrees with Vonnegut that you can see all kinds of things from the edge that you can't see from the center. Although sometimes it helps to be centered out on the edge as well. Um, he also just happens to be my brother. And from personally my point of view, if I were to discard him as my brother in my life and my journey in it, he has been one of the most helpful people and spiritual directors I have come into contact with. His experience on top of his learned knowledge and most of all his compassion and non-judgmentalness makes him one of the best resources I can think of for any big questions in life. Another way of saying that would be that even if he wasn't my brother, he would be the person I would reach out to for guidance in the world. So that's Tim. Do you want to say hi? Hi. <laughs> that was my best wonders impression right there. Oh yeah, the own eaters. Hey, that's on knitters. <laughs> you ever seen that thing you do? No. All right, well, it might be time. I'm too young. Okay, so before we get into capitalism, Tim, can you briefly define what theopoetics is and how it shapes your thinking? Oh, sure. Uh, I would love to. Theopoetics is a way of being a way of thinking about the world. It's engaged uh, in the discipline of theology, but really it's sort of an emphasis on aesthetics or experience or embodiment as different modes of reflection for theology. Uh, you can tell by the name that it's a more aesthetic dimension of theology, whereas a lot of people do their thinking in the head and their primary way to engage the world is by creating categories and frameworks and using rational logic. Theopoetics is a little bit more comfortable with feeling and emotion and evocative sensibilities when it comes to theological reflection. So that's my quick answer to that. But obviously, it's also just a way to engage the world in terms of story and in terms of a poetics. It's a playfulness in life. So I think you've described it once as being, uh, I'm thinking of process, but process is a form of theopoetics, correct? Basically, process thinking is a philosophy or sometimes it's a metaphysical worldview. And it's one of the dimensions of theopoetics because as a metaphysics, more than most other, and a metaphysics meaning just like a way to construct a worldview of the universe, you know? Mm -hmm. My friend Tripp says the way the universe universes, that's what metaphysics is. But mm -hmm. in terms of that, process thinking is an aesthetic metaphysics. So when it comes to thinking about God or thinking about religion, it's definitely a more aesthetic way to do it. The two main ways to talk about this would be what's called a substance ontology and an event ontology. So substances means we would conceive of the world based upon little bits of matter, right? Like if you knock your hand against the table or something like that, you feel it's solid. And so you think that the base elements of the world are little pieces of matter, however subatomic they might be in a sense. But event ontology people, and ontology is just like, again, another word to say, hitting at the reality of things. It's a conception of the way things actually are in and of themselves. An event ontology would mean that we're conceiving of the world not in terms of substances or little bits of matter, but in terms of events 
or happenings or moments or becomings or sometimes you can again with a more affective mode of that talk about feelings even or emotions and I think that for me the reason I'm most interested in process thought is that it seems to me to be much more resonant with contemporary findings in quantum theory and observation at the subatomic levels is we see it's a spooky spooky universe out there and so why would we want to still conceive of reality in terms of little bits of substance and what would happen if we totally changed our worldview to a place where there was a happening or a becoming at the very center of things. And so for me, that's become a central conviction, not only for how to view the world, but how to think about one's life, how to think about our society and our right. world. That It's a continual evolution. It's a continual process. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and then that we can create our lives in such a way that we go with that flow rather than resist and dig our heels in and try to remain static, which is really the opposite of what the universe is. For sure. One of the reasons that I love dialoguing with you is that to me, your way of looking at the world through a process lens and through the lens of theopoetics, it means much more than just being simply defined as what most people would say that a spiritual leader is or a person of a Christian faith or evangelical faith. And so I just wanted you to define that a little bit to kind of show our listeners that you're not coming from that place. You're coming from a little bit of a different place. Yeah. Are you referring to how my personal spirituality would differ from like a popular conception of Christianity in our country kind of a thing? Or Correct. Yeah. It depends on the question, right? Like if you're trying to ask me what most influences my perspective, it's definitely process thought. So rather than maybe when I was growing up, that unquestioned form of Christianity was the thing that most influenced me. Now my process thinking influences my Christian praxis. You know what I mean? So that's one way to delineate it as a difference. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I mean, the school of thought, again, that influences me is called natural theology. That's another way to talk about this, which is really means like a philosophical theology. So it's not just taking the Bible as the authority of what is true or not true when it comes to the practice of one's faith, but engaging with the disciplines, you know, interdisciplinary thinking. So the best of our science, the best of our anthropology, the best of our sociology and psychology, and all the ologies can help us to construct a more balanced worldview. And then the question would be theologically, I think, are there ways to actually speculate about something like divine reality, given that interdisciplinary approach? And what do we see from a natural metaphysics? And what kind of worldview does that shape in us? And what possibilities does that yield for thinking about God, but also how does that change the way we engage with what Peter Berger called our sacred canopies, the religions that we're given as we're born into this world. And if we're talking about Christianity, should we just hold our Christianity with the authority of the Bible, or can we bring the Bible into conversation with other disciplines that actually buoy and enliven what it could mean, and actually perhaps might even give us a more accurate picture into what those texts were trying to do originally. Right. So, and a lot of, I think of the phenomenon of Western Christianity, especially in America, is beholden to what I would call like an a-rational or like an anti-scientific worldview, which means that they see those other disciplines as a threat to the authority of scripture rather than something that can be conversant with scripture to give us a deepening picture of what the tapestry of religion could be. So hopefully that clarifies it a bit. Totally it does. A quick shout out. Tim is also the host of the Theopoetics podcast, which is a fascinating listen if anyone wants to listen to it. Um, season two is about to start coming out uh, this fall. So check it out. Theopoetics podcast. 
All right, so let's delve into today's topic, unless you have anything to say. No, I'm just soaking it up. Gabe's still here, by the way. Um, (laughs) As a precursor, I should say, Gabe and I are not nearly as educated as much as Tim is on the topic of capitalism. So from here on, we will all be learning together. But Tim also was saying you're not an economist, so to speak. Absolutely. So it needs to be said at the outset that my analysis of capitalism comes from a different angle. I try to read various authors and thinkers who engage from the disciplines of economics or psychology. Again, just sort of like bringing that tapestry into play to help me understand it. But for me, I think predominantly my curiosity in wanting to engage capitalism and to better understand it is from the location of the human life and what is happening to subjects under its uh, its rule and how it's affecting human beings at the soul level. At some point, I probably should define what I mean by soul, but we'll get there. So for me, my, my analysis of it is as somebody who walks with people in community, wanting them to be most fully alive. And so my analysis is coming from that angle of trying to observe the ways in which capitalism is affecting people's lives. So over the past four years, you have been taking sort of a deep dive into capitalism, as you were just saying, and the state of our country, I guess you could say. So what what was the catalyst for that? Uh, It was the 2016 election, actually. Uh, (laughs) Do you all remember that? There was like this night in November where it was like this big surprise victory and... Uh, For some people, they weren't so surprised, actually. So for me, it was the befuddlement of the 2016 election results. And so I pretty quickly jumped into my own (laughs) journey of of doing some deeper analysis of, of what's going on in our country. had tweeted out that night something pretty shocking and i don't know if it was hyperbole or not but well i mean it was i was also caught up in the moment after having a beautiful (laughs) evening with a pizza and a growler of beer and i said you know i said this feels worse than chemotherapy which i know firsthand how that feels so (laughs) so maybe i was a little caught up in the moment but there was a lot in my life personally but also i think in our country that concressed in that moment to make such a heavy statement come out of my mouth or out of my thumbs on Twitter. In hindsight, knowing that the history of things has always been Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat coming off of Obama, was it that much of a shock to not think that it would be another Democrat that was elected? No, you know, given our nation's history of white supremacy, I think that we probably should be less shocked. I think actually, you know, I think it was uh, Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock on that SNL episode that weekend after Mm -hmm. the election who did that skit on white folks and black folks watching the election results roll in and the white people are all shocked and the black folks are just like, did you not expect this to happen? You know, like, I remember that skit. It's super funny. So given our nation's history, I don't think we should be surprised. I think what was initially shocking for me was just given the reality of Trump's lack of political expertise and ability to engage 
on any sort of issue that was constructive in regards to our country's well-being. I was surprised that we elected a reality TV star. But, I mean, we elected Ronald Reagan. We elected actors in the past. But it was sort of the shock of Donald Trump. I mean, people were, when he first said he was running, it was kind of a joke in the media, I mean, that there was a lot of saying like, oh, this is another sort of publicity stunt or something like that. But it clearly wasn't. I mean, it was very serious. And so so I think that was part of the disparity between our disbelief and thinking that somebody like him could be elected and the actual event of it happening. It was just a, a huge gap of awareness for many of us. But it also revealed something about a large contingency of our country that's very real. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that was my next question to follow this up and also segue into the rest of the conversation, which is how are capitalism and Donald Trump linked? Why are we talking about Trump all of a sudden when we should be talking about capitalism? I guess I would begin by saying that it's tough for any of us to sit around and talk about capitalism without recognizing that we're all subjects within its power. So Donald Trump's relationship to capitalism is perhaps not different than our own in that he's a capitalist subject. He's somebody who lives... within a capitalist system, but I think he's got a closer kinship with it because of his demeanor or his personality as a businessman. You know, he bills himself as somebody who knows the art of the deal. He has said before, I'm the king of debt, which is something that is directly tied to sort of late capitalism, neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. So Donald Trump is a figure. I mean, he's not the problem with our country, but he's sort of the talking head of the widening wealth gap and the perpetuation of some of the worst parts of our society. The sense that he puts off, I think, is that he's sort of given over to the ideology of capitalism as somebody who wants to pursue wealth and power as like the highest ideals of individual realization. So that's one way I think that he's become this king of financialization in a sense, even though, as we just found out, it's it's very likely that he owes about $40 million to a bunch of other people and paid about a 12th or 13th of the taxes that I pay every year, which is absurd. Yeah, it's absolutely upside down. Bit of a paradox there. For sure. So at this point, I think we needed to define capitalism because there are actually two different kinds of capitalism. There's probably more, but there's two. Or eras, yeah. Major ones, eras of capitalism. There's a capitalism in the sense that everyone knows it, the Karl Marxist thinking of capitalism. And then there's the capitalism that we are discussing today that most people don't know or think about as being any different. And this, I think, is a necessary distinction to continue in the conversation. Like Tim said, it's sort of a different era of capitalism. If you were to Google capitalism, this would be the definition. An economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit, rather than by the state. But what most people don't realize is that this kind of capitalism doesn't really exist anymore in our country. In an essay called, I'm the King of Debt, which again, Tim was just saying, that was a quote by Trump, Pastoral Reflections on Debt in the Age of Trump, the author Bruce Rogers Vaughn writes the following. 
On Thursday, January 7th, 1993, just 13 days prior to his inauguration as U.S. President, Bill Clinton held his first meeting with the National Economic Council. In a memorable display of insight and consternation, upon hearing a summary of the state of the economy, he muttered, You mean to tell me that the success of the program and my re-election hinges on the Federal Reserve and a bunch of f***ing bond traders? His advisors saw this as the moment Clinton realized he was in a new world, one controlled by the financial markets and speculative investments. This is a world, as Clinton grasped that day, that lives on financialization, which is a pattern of accumulation in which profits accrue primarily through financial channels rather than through trade and commodity production. This is not, in other words, the capitalism of Marx's time, which was primarily dependent upon industrial production, the sales of commodities, and the value of material labor. Industrial production has not disappeared, but has been displaced. This is the age of financial capitalism, not industrial capitalism. However, to assert that profits accrue primarily through financial channels remains a mystification, it hides the fact that the entire system depends on the production of debt. In financial capitalism, investors are either trading in or betting on the debt produced by those who have taken out loans. The system hinges not on existing material assets, but on contractual promises to produce future assets, which will themselves be primarily financial rather than material. Bruce. Bruce. That's an office quote for all you out there. So Bruce goes on to write an example, and many of you can relate with this out there. If Sarah goes to a bank and takes out a $50,000 loan for her education, this does not actually come out of the bank's holdings. Rather, the bank electronically transfers the amount of the loan to her school's bank. Generally, so many millions of these transactions occur between banks daily that the actual cost to her bank is simply neutralized. If it is not, or if Sarah's bank has exceeded its fractional allowance, her bank can temporarily borrow the money from other banks at an interest rate many times lower than what it will charge to Sarah. Meanwhile, the bank's contract with Sarah, due to the miracle of compound interest, has created, say, $70,000 for itself, the original amount of the loan plus interest. In effect, the bank has created an asset out of thin air based solely on Sarah's promise to pay the risk of which is calculated based on her credit worthiness. Ross, which is an author that Bruce Rogers Vaughn is quoting within his essay, calls this phantom asset growth, which appears as if from nowhere. <laughs> Wealth is conjured. It is simply numbers on a computer screen. The bank then bundles Sarah's loan with thousands of other loans and sells them on the financial market, creating additional profit for itself. From there, investors trade in these speculative bundles, disassembling and recombining them along the way. This convoluted and fluid system is what leads us to conclude that money is created as debt. So in this new definition of capitalism that is no longer industrial capitalism, it is called financial capitalism. It mainly works as a system based off of debt. Off of nothing. And it is arranged in such a way that it only helps the 1%, the elite rich at the top, while everyone else suffers. 
So back to you, Tim. Question. <laughs> we know it's called neoliberalism. You called it late capitalism. So neoliberalism, by definition, would be... Would be late capitalism and its ideals. It sort of is ushered in in late 70s, early 80s with Reagan's election. And so, yeah, it's just the time period, right? Again, late capitalism, neoliberalism, and financial capitalism are in some sense synonyms. Three ways to say the same thing. But you could hear in late capitalism a sort of epochal or time period to that. And you can hear in neoliberalism almost like this tinge of ideology, that it's a new liberal movement. And then financialization or financial capitalism, or sometimes it's called financialism, is a way to say that what Bruce said really beautifully there, which was that all the money that's made now is made off debt. Not all, but the highest commodity is buying up debt and betting and guessing on who's going to pay their debt instead of selling products to consumers, which was how capitalism got started. Bruce's article was kind of talking about how Trump bought a hotel in the 70s and he essentially bought it with nothing. He bought it with debt. And that's why he calls himself the king of debt, because his whole empire has been built on essentially, as Bruce put it, the promise that people will pay back their loans. Right, right. Which is crazy. Yeah. Maybe that's how he can shirk taxes and everything. Maybe. Who knows? It's a mystery. <laughs> In my understanding of neoliberalism as an ideology, sort of as it exists today, is that it sort of occupies that centrist position on the political spectrum. And so that a lot of people that would be more in that moderate region of Democrats or even left-leaning Republicans occupy that space. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. In the way that they would still identify as maybe left-leaning, but they would still support this capitalistic lifestyle or a Correct. socio-political ideology. Right. And so the Biden-Harris campaign, right, is still totally committed to neoliberal capitalism. I think the reason that Bernie has gotten such a bad rap as a far leftist is because he's the only one who will even talk about being a little bit more socialist with our money. And he's still like a democratic socialist. You know, he's not a, like a real socialist. Yeah. And the other thing here is it's not only just a centrism or one other way to say it would be the fact that the left in our country is really not left globally. Globally, but in our country, it feels left because the right is so far right. But the other side of this is libertarianism is really popular, which is another form of a neoliberalism. So that's another dimension. But for the most part, I think we're dealing with a bipartisan system in which both parties are fully capitalist. Can you go a little bit further into what you just said about libertarianism is a form of neoliberalism? So in terms of value systems, libertarians value liberty, obviously, right? So their moral taste buds are such that there's a strong sense of wanting to have a deregulated government, like having more freedom, right? Like not having the government involved so much so that they can have the freedom to pursue a lot of things, but wealth and capital. And, and then the other one is really sort of tied to, they score a little bit on the fairness paradigm of wanting things to be fair. But for the most part, libertarians almost exclusively score in the liberty morality. So basically what that means is that in our country, at least, they think the government should be involved less and that they should be free as individuals to pursue meaning. And if you read anything about neoliberalism, you know that it's a high emphasis on the individual pursuit of their individual meaning and wealth. And it's part of the product of the Enlightenment. But libertarians have really taken that to heart and embody that in a different way. Right. Globalization has made it so that it's to the far reaches of the earth. But if you're an American capitalist and you're a libertarian, you can see how the emphasis on freedom and deregulation, I mean, 
mean, you hear about Trump even recently this last week talking a lot about deregulation as a way to free up the markets, right? It means less government involvement in businesses so they can pursue more capital, right? right. And to people who own either businesses or large conglomerates, that's an enticing idea because they could make more money. And libertarians, and there's no way to paint them all with one brush, but right, right. for the most part, like they care about liberty, which is deregulation. But it applies to other spheres of life, too. I've seen sort of simplified political compass charts where you have the x-axis being left and right-wing conventional political views from socialist to whatever you would call the right wing <laughs> at this point. And then usually there, there'd be a y-axis on these simple charts where that would be at the bottom, a libertarian upwards to the top, which is authoritarian. And sometimes you see, you know, like a Facebook quiz or something that'll tell you where you land on that chart. So it is, like Tim said, something you can't really paint with a single brush because they could fall somewhere else on the spectrum, really. So in America, where we live, we all live here, capitalism essentially benefits the 1%. I was reading in the article, it sort of transpired in the 70s, and they tested it with Chile, and it worked. Essentially, they basically manipulated everyone in the lower and the middle class to give the money to the 1% at the top, which is absolutely f***ing crazy. But, <laughs> and then later, after it, we started doing it in America, someone at a unity conference in Africa, he was like the prime minister or something, or the, the president of this country, spoke out against it and then was assassinated three months later which is also crazy. And then it's basically this message to countries in Africa that you better get in line. Yeah. So what's the question? <laughs> I guess, how did we as a country at that time and, and continue to hand ourselves over to the 1% and why? Why do we do that? Oh, yeah, I can answer that. Uh, so <laughs> neoliberalism was instituted in our country to return the wealth to the wealthy because there was a period of time for, I can't remember the actual duration of it, but they, they were losing their wealth. But you were kind of asking, why are we committed to this widening wealth gap? We're duped by the American dream, to put it bluntly. The American dream being that you can rise to wealth no matter your situation and that we buy into that promise within the capitalist model of production, consumption and accumulation, even to our own debt and detriment. <laughs> There's a cultural analyst, actually film professor named Todd McGowan, who wrote a book called Capitalism and Desire. The subtitle is The Psychic Cost of Free Markets, where he analyzes the American condition of continuing to buy into our demise. Like, why would we do this, right? If we're getting poor and the rich are getting richer, why do we keep doing it? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, he says that capitalist subjects experience satisfaction itself as dissatisfying. So you got to let that one sit for a second. That we pursue consuming things in our lives that dissatisfy us and we get a satisfaction from our dissatisfaction. And that as we move forward in that paradigm, he says what keeps us under that boot is the promise of the future. The promise of it being better the next time. iPhone 12, iPhone 13, iPhone 14, you know what I mean? Yeah. The promise that the next product we consume is going to make our lives easier and bring us to the heaven that we desire, right? The utopia that we desire. And so we buy into this, I think, because at a psychical level, we have innate desires and they have been formed and shaped by capitalism in such a way that we believe the promise of the future, even when the present is screaming at us that that's not happening. 
So when you look at something like the widening wealth gap, which, you know, as neoliberalism enters in the late 70s, early 80s, we see this continuing snowball effect of this widening wealth gap. But middle America and Trump voters and people who believe that they could someday rise to where Trump is if they just pursued the American dream, keep buying into it, even though the gap gets wider and wider, because the rhetoric of <laughs> of the right is that we can make it great again, that we can make things great, even though they might be now. And we don't call that into question because we want to believe it. You know, we want to think that our lives would be complete if we bought the house, had the two and a half kids, had the car, had the job. And even when, you know, we're in the highest unemployment we've ever been in our country right now, partially due to a pandemic, but we still hold out for hope. And the hope has been co-opted by capitalism. And we've been duped to think that we can find happiness by consuming and accumulating things in our lives. And it couldn't be further from the truth. This is where the other element to your background comes into play, faith and the inner life or the soul. So again, this is also taken from Bruce's article. Neoliberalism aspires to be a complete way of life and holistic worldview in a way that previous models of capitalism did not. So within this worldview, debt is a story that neoliberalism tells itself about how things must be and about what they will become. It is intrinsic to the plan of salvation. We trust that the proper leveraging of debt will bring us to prosperity and happiness, which is what Tim was just describing. It also describes sin, which now becomes a state of failing to be creditworthy. Freedom is redefined individualistically as our personal unconstrained ability to choose one path over the other. Neoliberalism is thus a narrative of faith. So that's the conclusion that you can draw. So Tillich, this is Bruce again quoting another person in his article, famously described faith as the state of being ultimately concerned. As such, it is an act of the personality as a whole. Faith, then, is not simply cognitive belief. Faith as ultimate concern involves the whole person, including affect, devotion, and desire. We do not simply have beliefs, we love them. He continues, following Tillich, it is more accurate to say that, in the case of faith, the object of belief and desire is one and the same. Faith has to do with what we set our hearts upon. And then a little bit down the paragraph, he continues, in our time, Tillich declared a prominent form of idolatrous faith is social standing and economic power. The idea that the market or the economy can be treated as a god has been asserted by a number of theologians, political analysts, and economists. However, the core of neoliberalism is not devotion to the free market as many have assumed. Rather, it is faith in a monopoly form of capitalism based primarily upon financialization. This is an idolatrous faith that both emerges from and supports what I am calling the debt system. Again, this is Bruce talking, what he is calling the debt system. And then he continues, I am convinced that we cannot make headway as long as we limit our analysis to how neoliberalism works as a systematic destruction or disembedding. We must also appreciate how it functions to create meaning, assuage anxiety, and establish a type of social cohesion. 
We must, in other words, understand it as a faith system. supports why we're bringing in faith and I think Tim again is the perfect person to have this conversation with because he has the background of faith and spiritual direction and also has been studying capitalism for the last four years. Can we talk a little bit more about that? So we're essentially saying that consumerism I guess is the weapon right and then capitalism or or neoliberalism is sort of the person that is holding the weapon you know. Capitalism's holding the weapon of consumerism. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it starts actually a little earlier in a paradigm of production. If you take the paradigm of capitalism as simply just production, consumption, accumulation, just if your goal is to produce, 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 if nobody consumes it, you can't produce anymore, right? So your first step is that we need somebody to buy. And it starts there. So rather than have a barter economy, which was the way that human beings related for a long time, and like, well, I'll trade you, you know, I I trade this, you trade that. We still barter a little bit, right? We've got international trade and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's international sales, you know? I mean, I think that consumerism Here's one another way to say it. It would be like, my favorite philosopher says that life is robbery. And what he means by that is metaphysically, we're always stealing the energy from other things, right? When we eat food, when we drink water, we're stealing energy, right? We're robbing energy from something else. So we consume all the time because that's what we do to stay alive. So it's not bad to be a consumer. What ends up happening is when consumers become consumerists, right? when we're forced into a paradigm because of production, consumption, accumulation of needing to consume more than we need. And we, again, give into that promise of the future and it becomes a way of life for us to do that. And so I just wanted to name that distinction between capitalists yielding the weapon of consumerism and say that from the get-go, it starts with producing too much You know, and when we make that the economy and people can build wealth off what Marx's whole critique of capitalism initially was, somebody else has got to steal the means of production. You know what I mean? Because if you own the means of producing products, you're going to be the rich person. Because then the working class will work for you for a cheap rate and you'll be the one making all the money off the profit for selling your goods. So Marx is saying, get back the means of production because if you own the means of production, you own the wealth. And so it starts earlier than consume, but it is a part of it. And again, if you can take back the means of production at a certain point, then you share that communally and then you can transform the economic relations. But the reason why so many Americans are like freaking out about Marx and using it almost like as a dirty word now, even though like in the 60s, it was, you know, pretty prevalent among academics and other people to be thinking that way. You know, when you hear somebody say like, oh, she or he is a Marxist, what they're basically saying is they don't want to give up the means of production because they believe in a narrative in America that the people will be lazy, right, if they're not working very hard. So basically what they'll say is something like, you'll hear this too, if you bring up Marx to anybody who's a critic of Marx, they'll say something like, well, you're just denying all the good that capitalism has done to raise up the poor or the lower class, you know what I mean? Because we now have better jobs, we have better infrastructure, more wealth than we've ever had, there's less poverty globally, and all the while, There are these other statistics that show the complete opposite yield of capitalism. And so rather than acknowledge the socialist possibility of having a base livelihood for our citizenship in this country, they will use the rhetoric of, 
Well, without a free market, there'll be no entrepreneurship. There'll be no ingenuity. Nobody will be trying new things and taking us to new places and we'll become lazy and all that. So just trying to draw those contours there a bit. I don't know how to segue into this, but, and you took this from another book, replacing God with capitalism. And that's kind of where our United States economy is. Yeah. And I'll read you a couple of quotes from some of my favorite philosophers okay. that talk about this. So Giorgio Agamben, who's an Italian philosopher, he says this, capitalism is really a religion, literally the most fierce, implacable and irrational religion that has ever existed because it recognizes neither truths nor redemption. A permanent worship is celebrated in its name, a worship whose liturgy is labor and its object money. And God did not die. He was transformed into money. So Nietzsche is famous for saying that God has died and we have killed him. But what Agamben is reflecting on here basically is that God didn't actually die, but we just transformed our sacred desire onto money rather than God. So that's the critique he's making. And there's another author I like named Eugene McCarraher, but he's got a book called The Enchantments of Mammon. He launches into it as well. He calls it mammonism. And so mammonism, for some of your listeners who aren't familiar with the term, is, you know, it's something that, that Jesus of Nazareth talked about. It, it's a contrast to him to the kingdom of God, which is a, a kingdom of commonwealth, kingdom of sharing all that they had in common, of living in love and compassion for the care and needs of the community. And mammonism is not just believing in money as God, but it's a system of operating where money is God. So it's a system of relations in a community where the yield is earning and money and wealth is the highest value. So what he says is, he says that mammonism is the state religion of the United States. It punishes its own believers. Unemployment, bankruptcy, etc., have become the yield of the established faith. Those who are its theologians are going to fight tooth and nail for it, and even more so as it is exposed as failing during this financial crisis. He goes on to say that the world does not need to be re-enchanted because it has not been disenchanted in the first place. Capitalism has been a religion of modernity, one that addresses the same hopes and anxieties formerly entrusted to traditional religion. So what's he saying there? There's another critic of capitalism named Max Weber who said that he coined this taste the disenchantment. That during the transition from the pre-modern worldview, we have lost the enchantment of seeing a sort of sacred tinge to the world that we live in. Seeing value in it, seeing God in it. I mean, however you would talk about the sacred to yourself, you can envision what an enchanted worldview would be. And moving into the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment, we have become disenchanted in a sense. And so what he's saying here is that that's actually not true. We didn't lose our sacred sensibility as human beings. We just turned that sacred sense toward money and toward mammonism. And we have started to worship that rather than something like God, right? Right? Yeah. And there's resonances with evangelicalism in America here, too, and how one could make a case that evangelicalism is a sort of a money cult. And that's a book, again, by another author. But the question has to be held out, I think, for folks who are religious as to what we're serving. And I think when we find ourselves defending the market over the well-being of our fellow humanity, we have to question what our God really is. How can... Christians or evangelical Christians, a lot of them would, you know, might even say non-denominational Christians or whatever. <laughs> like that's kind of how we grew up. Our Christianity said that we were non-denominational, meaning that we had no denomination, but really we were evangelical. Fives and tens and twenties. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's Isn't it interesting that money is segmented into denominations? Yeah. <laughs> but how can Christians, evangelical Christians, read Jesus's words saying you can't serve both God and mammon or God and money, which, you know, mm-hmm. mammon is money. That's where mammonism comes from for our listeners out there. And then continue down the system of serving money and claim to, to serve God also while still serving money. And then at the same time, supporting the people who have historically done terrible things with money. Well, I think, first of all, we've got to look in the mirror because I think we all serve money in this country to some extent. So I don't want to just lump evangelicals as the only populace in our country who pursues money as a high value. And, you know, unfortunately, all of us are forced into that paradigm for our livelihood. We have to have it in order to live where we live. But I can make a few comments, I think, about evangelicalism and why it functions the way it does. The first thing that came to mind when you brought up Jesus, Stephen, was that there's more than one teaching that he has on money. You know, there's a couple of other teachings that come to mind. One is that it's easier for the rich person to fit through the eye of a needle than it is for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's he saying about the allure of money when he says something like that, right? It's really strong. And those of us who have grown up in wealthy counties and places in the world, we know what it's like to have what we need at our fingertips and not only what we need, but all kinds of extravagances and delights and foods and things that we need, right? And I think what Jesus is teaching is hitting at there is it's not so easy to see this. It's really not. And when there's a populace of people who could look at the statistics and just completely turn the other way, I think we have to just acknowledge how alluring and how powerful money really is. So there's that. I think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked him how to enter the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, which again, this is poetic image to say, how do I enter the good life? How do I become fully alive? How do I become enlightened? How do I become happy? You know, how do I become fulfilled? And Jesus says, well, why don't you just sell everything you have and give to the poor and come follow me? And he's like, yeah, no, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, I'm going to walk away hanging my head. Right. Because, mm-hmm. because Jesus went right after the thing that was probably this person's idol, right. Or this person's God. And we don't give up our gods so easily. So there's that. There's also this story where Jesus actually talks about lenders and debtors and he starts to play with it. And he basically ends up saying like, so it's not about repaying and getting into debt and doing all that. He's like, it's about love. And so he ends up hitting get a deeper chord than just the system of debt relations in lending money and ends up saying, if you want to, like I said, we're going to all be in these monetary exchanges because of the society we live in. But if you want to find deep life, you will acknowledge that the deepest register of being is love and loving neighbors. And so I wanted to just say that at the outset to sort of say that I, uh, I see the truth in Jesus' words and I also wrestle with my own ability to claim the risk of love over the risk of financialization and the risk of debt. And I think that in Western sort of American evangelicalism, that's happening in mass. So there's a couple of other factors here that are in play that keep evangelicalism from moving toward shifting their value systems. Right. There's a whole history to that too that, surprise, surprise, comes in about the same time as neoliberalism. And I could speak to those if you want. Yeah, you should. I didn't know how he would segue there, but if you're on the train, let's ride the train. Yeah. So when it comes to evangelicalism, it's not just a voting block in our country. We have to realize that this is a mobilized group of folks that are about 40 years old. 
at least in the iteration that it's taking now. And it's continuing to evolve. So it's not just capitalism that is influencing them, but there is an authoritarian teaching that's usually perpetuated by white males in power called pastors that keeps them engaged in a certain value system and disengaged in other elements in society. So to go into the history a little bit, In the early 70s, there was a group of evangelical thought leaders who got together in Chicago and they created this document called the Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social Concern, in which they decried consumerism, American militarism, they were anti-racist, they were pro-women's rights and inclusion. You know, all the things you would hope that people who've read the Bible before would care about. And these are evangelicals, right? So we have to own that that's a part of the history. By evangelicals, I mean a religious movement who at the time were sort of considered more like the country bumpkin cousins of the mainline churches, which were the prominent downtown, big, flourishing churches in the 40s, 50s, 60s. So in the early 70s, the evangelicals get together. They make this declaration of evangelical social concern. And then even in the early 70s, after the Roe v. Wade ruling on abortion, the Southern Baptist National Convention for the first few years of its existence issued statements of support pro-abortion in certain circumstances that would maybe necessitate necessitate something like that. So, you know, Southern Baptists aren't exactly the height of American liberalism, if you know anything about them. But you can see how in the early 70s, this was a different world that we were in. It was a different ballgame being played. You also have a case in the early 70s called Green v. Connolly, where there was a ruling against private schools being allowed to segregate their students anymore. They were called Christian schools. And so the heads of these schools, one of them was Jerry Falwell. They were upset that they lost their tax exemption status over this ruling because they wouldn't admit black children to their schools. So you see also there in that time period, this is I think 72 or early 70s, the racism at the heart of this too. So in the late 70s, there were three districts that were swung in the midterm elections in 1978 by Catholic pamphleters over the issue of abortion. And they got conservative officials elected in historically maybe more liberal or democratic districts. So there was a small group of evangelical leaders at the time, Billy Graham, Jerry Falwell, Francis Schaeffer, who got together and saw this and said, how can we get political power, basically? And so you have this small group of folks you know, the issue of abortion in the 70s was a Catholic issue. It was something they were really passionate about. But they see the success of swinging these districts. They decide that we're going to go and market this issue to something that they're going to start calling the moral majority, which is a single issue voting block of evangelicals. So they start touring the country with a guy named Ronnie Reagan in the late 70s, trying to get him elected in 1980. And they're selling out auditoriums of 30,000 folks and, and thousands and thousands of people showing this movie, teaching people that if you're a true Christian, you're going to vote against abortion and we're going to be pro-life. And what do you know? They get Reagan elected in 1980 over Jimmy Carter, who's like literally a Sunday school teaching Southern Baptist, like an actual Christian, <laughs> you know, like in terms of the context, right? And so this begins the neoliberal arc of the last 40 years in 1980. 
you can see how once the evangelical world gained this sort of political sway and influence, how it influenced their continuing growing movement of folks who believed into this paradigm of thinking. So now we have sort of this Frankenstein version of evangelicalism in our country that only can see itself as committed to this ideology of the single issue voter and it comes alongside all of these different entities that continue to sort of perpetuate this worldview. Now, again, this is a broad sweeping brush. I've got friends who are evangelicals who are badasses. I've got friends who are academic evangelicals who I'm not talking about, but we're talking about this generalized movement. You know what I mean? And so what needs to be said in terms of this context of this conversation around capitalism is that this is all a hairball. It's all a conglomerate. This move toward this sort of far right wing religious sect that has evolved is directly correlated with a power grab by leaders that was for the sake of perpetuating a lot of racism and a lot of wealth. And so we just need to know that what we're dealing with today and the people I think that Trump speaks to most are not trying to necessarily engage with a nuance and critical thinking around core issues in order to work for the betterment of our society, but they are believing under a sort of authoritarian narrative that has given them a naivete that allows them to unplug from science, unplug from climate science, plug into being pro-life, plug into being anti-LGBTQ rights because of their religious convictions, and plug into the American dream of capital. You know what I mean? The American dream of wealth at the same time. So oh, I want to paint that story just to help people see that when we look at what evangelicalism has become, that's not what it was at its root. The word just literally means good news. It's supposed to be good news to a group of people. You know, so when you asked me, I think at the outset here, how could a group of people be voting against themselves in a sense, or like voting for their own impoverishment in a sense, that it's because religion is a strong and powerful force for communities in a country where the secularization of our country is meaning that what's holding the threads of our communities together is shredding and unraveling. Religion is one of the only ways that people still get together around shared values. And when your system is controlled by this narrative that is in bed with capitalism, is in bed with a lot of ascientific or anti-scientific engagement with the world around you. And this is where flat earth comes from. This is where creationism comes from in its uh, non-engaged form. And like I said, money's a powerful God. You can see how the worship of this God of redemption, and Bruce Rogers Vaughn ends up playing with that language, saying we don't need a salvation of redemption because to redeem is to redeem a debt or redeem like a, we'll sing songs in churches that say my debts are paid, my debts are paid. Thank God. You know what I mean? And we've gotten off on the wrong foot in the last 40 years. So going back to the abortion issue really quick, are you saying that up until the 80s election that you said abortion was only a Catholic issue? It wasn't even a political issue? I mean, any religious movement, if they vote in our country, is political, right? So what I'm saying is the Catholics were the advocates for it in the 70s. And it wasn't until the evangelical leaders caught wind that it worked to sway some districts that they used it in the 80 election. And that's why abortion has been a hot button topic ever since. 
For evangelicals, it's a huge one. In fact, if you heard the Mike Pence debate, it was what he kept going back to in questions that didn't even have to do anything with it. And you're like, why is he still talking about it? It's because he's speaking a code word to a voting block of people who, when they hear that, they think, I'm in. I'm in on the sacred group. They're activated. Well, in a way, it's a sociocultural identity marker for people. Like, if I'm pro-life, I'm in on the sacred community the beloved community of the evangelicals. And I want to also mention that as with any political issue, and this is where we're losing nuance in our society, right? It's so much more complicated than whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. Right. It's not about that. But what I'm trying to illustrate here is that to make it that black and white is to completely dismiss the complexity of this issue. But when people do that, they're doing it because it's been evoked in them by this narrative that has played that out, played that tape for 40 years saying, you're a Christian if you're pro-life. You're a Christian if you're pro-life. And you can ignore all that Donald Trump says and does to the contrary of other Christian convictions and say that he's better than Joe Biden because Joe Biden isn't pro-life, right? Do you see that, that play? Interesting. It's heavy. Well, you were asking earlier, Gabe, they go straight to abortion. Like they don't even talk about the other issues. Yeah, it's the first thing that comes up. <laughs> it's the tired tape that just plays over and over and over and over and over. If we would have like an actual nuanced discussion, right, about abortion, I don't know a liberal person who like wants unborn children to be killed. Like what, what do you think liberals want? It's all about the deregulation of a woman's body. They want a woman to be able to have their own choice in her own body. And I don't know a lot of evangelicals who are pro-lifetime, you know what I mean? Who really care about making sure that the child receives the education that they need and doesn't go into debt and making sure that the immigrants at the border aren't being ripped away from their family and like so if you're going to be pro-life be pro-lifetime but we have these nuances that we don't want to talk about because we can't hear each other and have an actual conversation in our society and that's another problem so instead we'll just keep throwing the bomb game are you pro-life are you pro-choice and we'll never hear each other and these voting blocks will just keep fragmenting and being pushed further and further away until we can get back to actual discourse in our society, which is not being encouraged right now. I saw a meme the other day that was someone holding up a sign that said, would you be pro-life if that life grew up to be gay? Well, it's those kinds of, again, it's called critical thinking. You realize how uncritical a claim like that would be without doing some nuanced engagement, right? And I mean, and these are human beings we're talking about. These are people we're talking about. And I mean, people who have opinions about this, not just the unborn children. I mean that we're talking about people and people are biopsychosocial animals. We're not just rational thinkers. We're not just brains. You could throw data, you could throw facts at people. They're not going to change their mind. In fact, the moral psychology shows that they'll just dig their heels in more when you do that. So unless we can find a way to humanize each other and have conversations about our values in ways that are dignifying, we're not going to be able to get anywhere by just shouting each other from our really non-critically thought out positions on this. You could almost call it like a herd position on this. Yeah. Yeah. Damn, Daniel. Back at it again. Damn. I was just going to ask Tim, since he's been doing this sort of analysis for a few years now, if he's hopeful in his perspective looking forward into the future, if there are ways that maybe things will get better, <laughs> people will start to become more inclined to have those conversations. Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful for a couple of reasons. One is due to the young folks. I think the upcoming generations aren't going to stand for a lot of what's going down right now. 
and that this is a generational thing that I'm hoping will start to fade into the the uh, the horizon of the future, and that the young people who are really passionate about the earth and passionate about racial justice, passionate about justice for the queer community, um, that they will lead the way on some of these issues. And the other thing that gives me hope is participating locally in the transformation of my community and my city to more just ends. I think any of us would get bogged down if we thought in this podcast conversation that we could fix what's happening with our nation. But there's an author named Rachel Naomi Remen who says that our goal should be to heal the world that touches us. And I think that that's a really beautiful and hopeful invitation to heal those parts of a suffering and ill world that touches you. And so that's why I kind of commit myself to working with my community here in Santa Barbara, working at the civic level with our city, right? We just last week got a, there was a street in Santa Barbara called Indio Muerto, which is dead Indian. And we, through one of my organizations I work with, we wrote a letter to the city saying like, this can't stand and it needs to change now. And the city council adopted it last week. So doing little things like that give me hope that we're seeing transformation happen, although it may not be at national levels and more planetary levels that we need to have a sustainable civilization in the future. I think that's where it begins. And if we had more and more people engaged locally, think of how the world could be transformed by that. So is there a way out? Is there a way out from being in the lower and middle class and not giving our money to the 1% anymore? Do we just boycott any kind of debt whatsoever? I know that's kind of what Dave Ramsey's thing is all about, not having any debt at all and kind of getting out of this system of debt. Are we going to forevermore until socialism takes over our country, be subject to the system of financial capitalism? That could be a whole nother episode, right? Totally. Because it's not about socialist takeover, you know. I'm speaking tongue in cheek in that. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. We've got socialist programs in America, welfare, social security. Those are socialist programs. So people who are saying that they're anti-socialist, tell them to give their social security checks back when they retire. Who's going to do that? Nobody. The point of having a more social democracy is to buoy the well-being of the populace. And the statistics show unequivocally that when somebody has a basic income, has all their health care needs met, has a good education paid for, that they are far more likely to succeed in life. Conservatives will say they're likely to be the most lazy people you've ever seen, right? People are going to abuse the system. There's always going to be people who abuse the system. But the statistics show that time and again, when everybody has their basic needs met, they flourish much more frequently. You know what I mean? So the question for our country, I think, is how far do we want to take our social programs that we already have? And where could we expand? And that's why Bernie Sanders was wanting to get rid of student debt, wanting to have free health care, talked about universal basic income. Because when we can actually eradicate poverty by just taking a little bit off the top of people who are multi-billionaires, I would say it's the closest thing to demonic that we don't do that. I don't believe, you know, necessarily, I don't need to give my ontology of the demonic, but the closest thing to demonic is three families owning 50% of the wealth in our country. It's unbelievable. But I'm just saying we have more wealth than any country's ever had, and we have the widest wealth gap in the world, and we have all the resources at our fingertips to bless our citizenship and our country with their basic needs, and we're choosing to idolize the dream of wealth over helping the poor. If you know anything about JC, I mean, you're in some hot water for that shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're supposed to be blessing the poor. And uh, our country 
has gotten it ass backwards when it comes to what they're worshiping. And it's really, it's really sad. I tend to try to stray from cynicism and bitterness and despair when it comes to these kinds of things, even though there's plenty of reasons to do so. That's sort of because of the process way of thinking, right? Well, it's also because I don't want to be living in that mode all the time of depression, which by the way, we didn't even talk about today is the yield of capitalism globally. It's the number two cause for disability planet-wide under the guise of capitalism. Anyways, so rather than giving into that, I think that we should commit to the transformation of our democracy for the sake of the betterment of the whole, not just serving the 1%. I don't see why any citizen in our country wouldn't want something like that. But again, we talked about all the reasons that they don't readily jump at the chance. And a lot of it is just some sort of some clan psychology here and, and some reasons that human beings and herds don't just readily jump at the chance to help themselves. But for the most part, I really do hope that we can continue the work of transforming our democracy rather than slipping away into the demise of our democracy, which is where honestly we're heading right now without some major change. I would say that I try to lean toward more optimistic viewpoints as well. So who can sit in the negativity too long before it consumes them? Yeah, it's done its work on me in the last four years. So I've been sitting with it for a while, meaning the negativity and the feeling. I mean, I was hospitalized for anxiety for the first time in my whole life, having to go to the ER with a panic attack. Where did that come from? You know, so part of my analysis in this is also I have so appreciated the thinking of Bruce and others who have helped me look capitalism in the eye and have a better sense of what's going on so that I can be free from the perils of the psychical despair that it produces in young earners and trying to provide for their families. And I, I really think that the more educated we become on this stuff, the more we have an accurate perspective of what's happening, the less that we feel anxious about the trends that we see in the upcoming election, the more we know exactly what's going on, then we can know how to go the other way. And you talked about a way out. We have to look it straight in the face and not shy away from saying, you know, this is harming folks. This is yielding depression. This is yielding poverty. This is making Jeff Bezos and others billionaires time and time and time over during a recession. And if we can't decry that as amoral, I don't know what else we can stand up against. 100%. So we've got to look it in the face and call it for what it is. So you didn't talk a lot today, Gabe. Well, I was doing a lot of listening because you've had this conversation before and I haven't. So it's more informative for me than anything. Mm. I also don't know as much as your brother uh, about anything, <laughs> really. I mean, that's not true. <laughs> so I was just taking it all in. I mean, if we were to have a follow-up discussion, I would have plenty of questions for him. But in the moment, I just wanted him to keep talking and me to be quiet, you know, <laughs> so that we could get as much out of him as we could. I think I could say for both of us, you know, like my brother said, and I, I'm paraphrasing here, I can't quote him verbatim, but in the end, it's about each other and that if we could figure out how to break down the barriers and humanize one another, then we could start to have compassion on one another rather than be so divisive. And so for my brother to give reason for the division in our country and also to give reasons to why it was really helpful for me just to have a little bit of peace of mind. And I hope it was helpful for our listeners out there and also for you as well, Gabe. Yeah. A lot of people, and I'm no different in our generation, generations Y and Z, we're feeling the effects of a hundred years 
of American progress. And sometimes those things are good, sometimes they're bad. And I think it's important to try to find out why as an individual and as a society we are suffering in a lot of ways. People are suffering and they might not have the information to figure out why and ways to fix it specifically in terms of depression and stuff like that. And people are so confused why we are this way. Yeah. And this discussion is just t- scraping the tip of the iceberg to figure out how we got here and where we can go from here to try to get out of that dark place. And both Gabe and I, we could talk about media, film, television, music for ever and comment on it and its impact on us and whether it was enjoyable or not. But capitalism as a topic was never something I think that we would have ever done a podcast about. But as you can see and hear from my brother and how he described it all, I picture like an octopus. There are so many like tentacles like spread throughout every little crevice of our history as a country and throughout the world, you know, the globalization of it. And those things have brought pop culture to what it is today. Yeah, and also it's super messy. Even though we're trying to give reason and explain a little bit of structure, pull back the curtain and reveal what's behind, you know, like the Wizard of Oz kind of thing. <laughs> but even when we're trying to reveal some of it and like shed light on some of this stuff, it's still so messy. And that's sort of what's going on in our world today, I feel. And people are very confused. And so we're just trying to actually bring a little bit of clarity and a little bit of light into the darkness of that. That's what I was trying to say. Good job. (laughs) And also on the flip side of that, there's no easy solution. You can't just remove the rot from the festering Mm. core (laughs) that is the toxic practices of modern day or rather late stage capitalism. So, I mean, even looking back at the Hamilton podcast, we talked about how when this country was founded, it was just people trying to figure out the best way to move forward. And they... Yeah argued about it for long time years before they could ever agree on anything and everybody ended up compromising and so we're seeing that a lot today in every avenue every time you turn on a news channel it's people arguing and not agreeing and there's a lot of fear yeah i guess in agreement at least gabe and i and my brother and maybe some of you guys out there can relate to that and i hope that you know this specific episode hit home in a way that it does for us. And like you said, bring a little peace of mind and a little clarity. Yeah. Hopefully only just be the beginning of discussions you might have with people you know. Making progress, moving the world forward, trying to help out people. Because at the core of it, we want it to be... Helpful. Yeah. And we want love to be that presiding theme rather than things like greed and (laughs) darkness, depression. That's actually part of why, just even as a podcast, we don't do any commercials. We don't... Unless they're fake. (laughs) Yeah. We're not making money on this. Yeah, really. If anything, we're losing money on this. (laughs) We're not doing commercials. We're not asking for money. We're just making it out of pure love of the content and love of the creation of it. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Stephen, for having me. I mean, it's always just fun to hang out with y'all. So thanks for your time. I appreciate you so much and your insight and your knowledge. It's 
Increable, as they say. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. Apart from listening to the Field Poetics podcast, is there any other way that people could engage with you? I write articles every now and again, mostly on spiritual things on my medium, or you can go to tdburnett.com, or you could follow along with what we're up to at the Way Collective, which is trying to build this community of shared practices and values about something else other than capitalism. So, <laughs> and you are at at tdburnett on Instagram and Twitter, Twitter, right? Yeah, yeah, both. Uh huh. Cool. Love you. All right, y'all. Love ya. Adios, amigo. Episode over. Ideology. Do you think we'll do another ideology episode anytime soon? Maybe a while from now. Maybe sooner than you think. It'd be fun to do like a pointed uh, religion deep dive. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> gonna burn some fridges. My gut reaction was like, ooh, no. It would even be fun. It probably wouldn't do very well. It, it's fun to... Is it fun? <laughs> Well, I mean, in the same way that the discussion about capitalism is fun. Not only is it important. It's necessary. Yes. I don't know. That's just, <laughs> just a thought. busting your chops. Yeah, I know. I'm, just, I'm thinking about. I see your chops and I'm busting them. <laughs> so. It'd also be fun to do like a part two to this conversation with your brother at some point. Because he has so much more information. Oh, he's like a well of. A, a deep well. As they used to say in the ancient King James <laughs> version of scripture. A wellspring of knowledge. A wellspring of knowledge. Oh, I hate myself for saying that. <laughs> I hope that stays in the podcast. I want to end. I'm just going to stop recording because <laughs> I feel so bad about what I just and said. And that's a wrap. <laughs>